0: One of the things we want to do as a church is ask difficult questions. I was chatting to someone the other day who said, uh, frustrated with their church experience because they were discouraged from asking questions. Folks, the truth is questions are good and tonight we're going to ask a very hard question. The whole talk tonight is going to be on this one question. It's a question of who are you? And we're going to look at that. Who are you really? It's a hard question, but we want to think about it and we don't want to be gullible. We want to switch our brains on. So I'm going to ask God for his help. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, please won't you teach us tonight. Tonight we're going to ask a hard question. And here's what we ask. Not because not we deserve it or, or we think you owe us anything. But will you be kind and tell us the truth? Please tell us the truth. We want to know what is true. As we open the Bible, please help our brains to not get tired. It is the end of a weekend. Please help us to do lots of thinking, to really engage with the issue, to listen for the voice of God, the voice of truth. Please help us. Amen. Well, folks, that's the real question for tonight. I'm going to ask it again. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? It's a question that will come back every now and then. Now, I know that the world has structured your week so that it's not a question you actually have to ask all that often. Here's why. Because the world has designed us to be consumers. That's the world we live in at the moment. And fundamentally, you and I are consumers. We live our whole lives. It goes in one end, out the other end, and a couple of laughs along the way. But every now and again, we want to stop and we want to be different to my spaniel at home. And we want to ask, who am I really? Because animals don't really ask that question. But people do. Who am I? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Really, really, really. And it's a question that has plagued humanity for a very long time. Long, long ago, uh, in ancient Greece, there's the temple of Apollo uh, at Delphi, and there is this inscription that says, Gnoti Seaton, know thyself, or in plain English, know yourself. And that's been a pursuit of West, at least, probably others, but I'm only familiar with Western philosophy. That has been the pursuit of Western philosophy for a very long time. Know yourself. How do I know this thing that I am? It's a great quest. That idea of know yourself has woven or woven, whatever the correct word is, through Western culture. So much so that you come to a philosophical movie like The Matrix and Neo goes to see the lady who makes cookies, the oracle, and written above her door is, know thyself. It's a quest in the Western world. There was a time in the Western world where the study of God was thought to be important. No longer. Now it's all about studying the human. Know yourself. There's a great line from Alexander Pope that says, Know yourself. Presume not God to uh, scan. The proper study of man is man. It's saying forget God. That's what the poem is talking about. Get to know who you are. I'll show later that that's impossible. That if you don't know who God is, you will never know who you are. But I'll get to that later. Here's William Shakespeare. You may have heard of him, who was a small-time poet, lived a while ago. This is what he says in Hamlet: What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty! In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Struggling with the, what is a human being? Who am I really? Of course, if that doesn't appeal to you and you're at my educational level, then you're just thinking Alice in Wonderland. And you're thinking, remember the big fat caterpillar and the mushroom? And Alice comes up to him and the caterpillar says, Who are you? Do you remember that? And later on in the next line he says to Alice, Define yourself. Define yourself. And that, of course, is the basis of all marketing in our world today. All marketing in our world today is an opportunity for you to define yourself by your car or the hair products that I use or, or things like that. In fact, what is Facebook? What is, what is Bookface? All Facebook is, is it's an opportunity for you to define yourself, to create an identity for you. I want people to think I'm like that. And so, of course, you don't put a picture of you getting your ingrown toenail operation. What you do is you put a picture of you on a wave at the beach because you want everyone out there to define you by that. Facebook is an opportunity to define yourself, to create your identity. But every now and then comes back to the real question, who am I? Who are you? Now, you might be sitting there saying, how dull is this? Where's the practical stuff here? This sounds immensely philosophical and hopelessly impractical. Well, I want to tell you that knowing who you really are, having the truth, by the way, tonight, we're not into opinions. We're actually going to be bold and say we want truth with a capital T. I'm not going to venture a suggestion. I'm going to tell you who you really are, and I'll show you by whose authority. But I'll give you three reasons why it's immensely practical. First of all, to know who you are really means you'll know how to treat yourself. And you'll know how to treat other people who are like you. My wife took our petrol car in when we lived in London, in Wimbledon, and filled it with diesel. And it didn't work for a long time afterwards actually. Here's the point. You don't know what you're dealing with, you don't know who you are, you'll get the wrong input. And it won't work. But it's not just individuals. Not knowing what a person is or who you are has incredible ramifications and implications for society. If society doesn't know what a person is, there will be trouble. I'll just give you the plain facts. In America, which many people consider to be the most advanced society, although I think that's, it's losing its tinsel, but in America, the egg of a certain bird is more protected than an unborn child. The egg of the bald eagle in America is untouchable. It's got more legislation protecting it. If you tamper with it, you can go to jail. It's got a prison sentence. Millions of dollars are poured into protecting that egg. Can you believe we've reached the point in the world where the egg of a bird is more valued than an unborn child which you can terminate when you please for the sake of convenience. How did it get to that answer? Because you don't know what a person is. You don't know what a person is. It'll help you. I'm suddenly looking up and thinking that's an irrelevant point for this congregation. I was going to talk about if you have a teenager because what you get, let me give you some background quickly, don't pass this on. But you have these children who are happy with their identity. She's Superman and he's Batman and that's cool. And then suddenly they become teenagers overnight. And this, this thing starts to wonder what it is. And that's the struggle with teenagers is identity. Who am I really? Because by now they've grown up. They look at mom and dad and they think, I don't want to, whatever I am, I don't want to be that. That's cool. But who will I be? And so identity becomes a real issue. But maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we shouldn't ask such hard questions. Who are you? Maybe we should just settle for this question. What are you? What are you? Because that's actually an easy question. At school, your children are taught. Most of you don't have children, but pretend you do. At school, your children are taught not to ask who they are but to ask what they are, because that's all science can deal with. And so according to science, what are we? What are you? Well, it's easy. You're this conglomeration of atoms. That's what you are. You're about, well, I'll give or take a few trillion atoms that have all mysteriously come together. And when they f- rub in that, sensations Like thoughts and feelings come together. But all you are is this conglomeration of atoms and you will be like that. They stick together for about 650,000 hours. And I'm about to take one of those away from you. Isn't that awful? But that's all you are. And on the chemical level, you're just a bit of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, little bit of calcium, dash of sulfur, and a sprinkling of few other little chemical things, which you can get at the local pharmacy. That's what you are. And for some reason, absolutely inexplicable to science, this frail working together will suddenly decide to not work together. Still a mystery to science. And they'll separate and go into worms and other sorts of things. Is that who you are? I want to ask a harder question. I want to suggest to you that you are more than that. More than that. In fact, the answer is in front of us. There is no answer anywhere on earth that can compare to this answer. Have a look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Who are you? Here's the answer. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. You may say, I knew it. He was going to turn to our old book and say it's got the truth. Yes, I do, because Jesus said, this is the Word of God, and I happen to trust Jesus. Listen to what it says, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was morning the sixth day. Who are you? Here's the answer. You are a creature in the image and likeness of God. That is who you are. You are a creature made in the image and likeness of God. Now before we try to understand what that means, because that's all very well and good, but what does it mean? We'll come to it. I want to show you that it makes you very, very special. Let me show you two things. First of all, this idea that God created us, man, by the way, man in the Hebrew is adam, it's generic, it means male and female. When I say man, I'm not bringing gender into it. It's a generic term. But the fact that man is made in the image of God, in his likeness, tells us straight away two things. First of all, it tells us that human beings are special. We have a unique value, very unique. Unlike any other creature, God did not stop and say, let us make a cabbage in our likeness. In our rooms. God did not say, let us make a giraffe in our likeness. It is only man that is made in the image and likeness of God. It makes us special. Look, we are here. There is something unique and special about a human being. The Bible, any society on this earth that has been influenced by the Bible, has been a society in which human rights have flourished. Because it is the Bible that says man is unique and special. When you're having an afternoon doze, and you're in your Wanneroo little garden, and you've got your own little vegetable patch, as you do in Wanneroo, and you wake up at two in the afternoon and you hear a crunching and a chomping, so you go to your kitchen, you go to the broom cupboard, you haul out your 12 bore shotgun, because that's what you do in Wanneroo. And as you take out your shotgun, you go outside and there is a rabbit chewing at your prize leek. What do you do? You, you let rip, because that's what you do. But if you're having a doze at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you wake up and you hear a crunching on your carrots... And you go to the kitchen and you get your 12-bore shotgun and you go outside and there is a 7-year-old child in your garden. You respond differently. doesn't matter how you cut it. There is an infinitely different value between a human being and a bunny rabbit. Now, you might be saying everyone knows that. Yes, they do. But they don't know why. It's only the Bible that tells you why that's so. We all know it's so. We know that killing a dog is not the same as killing a human being. We know this. But we don't know why. And here is the Bible telling us that because we're in the image of God, we're at the pinnacle of God's creation. But now, don't get carried away. Ah, oh, we're gods. We can rape, pillage and plunder the earth. Do whatever we like. No. Because the fact that we're in the image of God is not only a thing that tells us we're special and unique, but it also humbles us. It makes us incredibly humble. Why? Because it teaches us that we are dependent on God. We are totally dependent on God. Here's why. What is an image? What's an image? It's a Reflection, isn't it? What's an image? An image is a reflection. It's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. It's just a reflection. It's like when you're brushing your teeth and you go to your bathroom you take the Colgate Total and you put it on your toothbrush and you brush your teeth just before working and you look in the mirror. You don't look in the mirror and go, oh, who's that? You know it's just a reflection. You're the real thing. That's a reflection. And it's totally dependent on you. If you walk out the bathroom, the reflection disappears. It doesn't stay there. And you look in the mirror and you decide, I've finished brushing my teeth. I want to see what my polished ivories look like. And you smile in the mirror. The image doesn't go, I don't feel like smiling. The image is totally dependent on you. The fact that man and woman are created in the image of God means we're totally dependent on God. We reflect Him. We were designed to be an image, to reflect something. That's why when you become a teenager, you have this inordinate desire to reflect something. So some of us who are older try and reflect Bono. Or other of us try and reflect, I don't know, Taylor Swift. Or I'm making this all up because I've lost touch with everything these days. I, of course, am working on trying to reflect Kelly Slater. And I'm getting there. My point is, is that we, that's what it all is. It's about reflecting something. And if you reflect anything other than the God who you were designed to be an image of, it will lead to pain and unhappiness. So, the image of God tells us about our unique, special place, and it makes us humble, and it tells us we're dependent on God. So there's Daisy the cow. There used to be this great joke about Steve Waugh and the cricket pitch, but only South Africans would enjoy it. So I'm not going to tell you. But um, so there's Daisy the cow chewing the cud, and now you can see why I'm talking about Steve Waugh. But anyway, and as she chews the cud. Daisy the cow looks at uh, Bluebell the cow, and they're in the field together, and Daisy says to Bluebell, Gee, I wonder what God's like. What does Bluebell say? Look, see the man and the woman. That's what God's like. We were meant to reflect God. That is who you are. Now, that's all very well and dandy, but what does it mean? What is the image of God? Now, guys, I'm going to apologize, but I'll do it once because I apologize a lot. So, I'm sorry for apologizing. Tonight's going to be cerebral. We really need to think tonight because we're dealing with a difficult topic. So, I'm giving you the warning. Heads up. Pinch yourself. Here is a definition of the image of God. Man is the image of God means... That man is created in the likeness of God, having all the faculties necessary for a relationship with God as God's Son, and in order to function as representative of God's rule in the world as a servant king. Lots of words, eh? Lots of words. But don't worry, because I've got lots of pictures for you as well. Here's the point, though. Man is the image of God. We are the image of God. It's not what we do that makes us the image of God. We are human beings, not human doings. God has made us in the image of God, and as a result of that, we live in a certain way. It's who we are that's being spoken about, not what we do. Now, for those of you who are lost with lots of words, remember Brendan says he prefers books with pictures? Well, Brendan, I've got lots of pictures for you. Okay, now let's work carefully through this. I'm just going to stand here and talk from my slides. There we go. What does it mean? Here's what it means. There. You got it? Is that all clear now? Okay, well, let me explain. So this is an image. It's an ancient image. In fact, this image is about the same time that the book of Genesis was written. It's an ancient image. It's in Kalba, the, on the mouth of the river Kalba, north northern part of Syria. Here's what happens. Ramesses, number two, was the king. He was the pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And he takes his army up north and he conquers Syria and what he does is when he's conquered the area he slaps his image there to show everyone he man. i'm the boss of this area see look the sun god ra that's what the picture is of and there's an inscription the sun god ra gave the victory to ramesses the 2nd and he puts his image i just want you to know i rule here okay that's why he puts his image there. By the way, Napoleon's got one there too. So does Alexander the Great. <laughs> so if you ever conquer Syria, make sure you put your image there too, because there's a. Anyway, why am I pointing to this? Because Moses grew up in Egypt. He was schooled in Egypt, and he uses their language. He has another Egyptian pharaoh. This is what you'll call your next child, Thutmose the Third. There is an inscription of him. He's a pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt. And he has an amazing thing for those of you who have been coming to Genesis. And this is the inscription. What he's doing here is he's imposing order over chaos. On the seventh pylon at Karnak, which is an ancient temple site. And there's an inscription that says, I let them see your majesty as Lord of light, so that you shone before them in my likeness. What you've got here is the God gives victory to the king and the king is the image of God. And so he, the God places an image of the king to show that he is boss. Now with that background in mind, let's think. We've been studying the book of Genesis. Genesis. What we've seen is that God has won a victory, a massive victory over chaos, over the forces of pain, confusion and chaos. The earth was without form, void, darkness over the surface of the deep. And God, through a series of very defined days, God imposed order on chaos. God has won a great victory. He has created order out of chaos. And so what God does is He puts His image there. And if you read the days, morning and evening was, in the Hebrew, a second day. Morning and evening was a third day. Morning and evening was a fourth day until you get to the sixth day. When God says, let us make man in our image, blah, blah, blah. And the morning and evening was the sixth day. It's a monument. It's special. This is the great day when, God rolls out His image, saying that God is the ruler of this place. And He puts His image, in His likeness, in earth. That's why the Jewish people were so against idols. You can't make a statue an idol of God because you are God's idol. You are the image of God. And of course, Jesus knew this very well. Do you remember in Luke chapter 22? They try and trick Jesus. So they come to Jesus and they say to him, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or isn't it? Now, Please don't think that question is just a bookkeeping question, just as a matter of interest. Talking about tax dodging, do you th- it's way deeper than that. Because Caesar was the conquering ruler of God's nation Israel. And so should we pay taxes to Caesar is a very deep question. What does Jesus say? He says, has anyone got any cash on them? He says, give me a coin. Someone rustles out, he has a coin. Jesus takes the coin and he says, you see that image there? Whose image is that? They all look at it, well, everyone knows. That's Caesar. All right, says Jesus, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If it's got his image on it, it must belong to him. Give it to him. Fine and good. Except then Jesus says something mind-blowing because after he says give to caesar what is caesar's he says and give to god what is god's and you can take people i don't have a single coin with god's image on it what is jesus saying he's saying you are the image of god you are god's image give to god not your cash give him yourself because you belong to him you are in the image of god now Who are you? You are in the image of God. But, in order to be in the image of God, you've got to be like God. You can't be like Ganesh, an elephant. You can't be like, uh, 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 what's his name? The snake? can't remember. Or Hanuman, the monkey. You've got to be like God. And so what God does is, He creates man and woman in His image, in His likeness. I.e., so that they are like Him. Did you know? That's an astonishing thing for you. In Ezekiel chapter 1, where the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of God, right? And he sees these amazing creatures. They're covered in eyes. It's weird stuff. I mean, it's out of our, you know, what we know about. But what he says at the end of this, he goes deeper and deeper, finally gets to the pinnacle of the vision of God. And he says, above their expense, over their, uh, sorry, and above the expense, There you go, Laura. Remember your question last week? Where's Laura? She's not here. There you go. Remember your question last week? And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. And an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne, and listen to this, was a likeness with a human appearance. Ezekiel, when he sees a vision of God, God is kind enough to appear like a man. Like a human being. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be in the likeness of God? And it means three things. Number one. Being like God, man relates to the world by ruling it as a servant king. God is a king. He's not a self-aggrandizing king. He doesn't kill things for himself. He's a generous king. Benevolent king. And so, man, in the image of God, is like God. He rules over the world as a servant king. In other words, God puts his ruler in the world. We had Brendan read Psalm 8 to us. I'm just going to read just a few verses. Just listen, because Psalm 8 is a commentary on this. And listen to what it says. O oh Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God has put all things under man and under His dominion. And ooh, people don't like that. But that's because chapter three's happened. We'll get to that later. Because now we exploit the world. But we were never meant to exploit the world. We were meant to care for it like a servant king. What's wrong with my picture? Who doesn't like my picture? Look closely at my picture. What don't you like about my picture? I know. Why can't you do PowerPoint properly, Duane? When you take an image, you can line it up and it'll put it slap bang in the middle. Because that's the truth. That is what the Bible teaches where you throw things at me. But let me just speak, and then I will show you that this is the way to be happy. Because this is the way God made it. What the Bible teaches is God made man in His image, in His likeness, male and female He made them, in His image, in His likeness, but He created them to be like Him. And the way that they are like Him is that they are servant kings, but there's order in their relationship. Watch. Being like God, man is a plurality of husband and wife in an ordered, joyful, other person-centered, complementary relationship where the husband is the head and the wife submits. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. Let me explain it, and then we'll deal with all the monsters in your head. First of all, man is a plurality of husband and wife. We know, we've been studying the book of Genesis, that God is not a monad. He's not, he's one being, but he's not one person. He's three persons in one. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, and a woman will leave it. The two will be joined, they will become one. Like God, man is a plurality of persons in one. The husband and the wife. But it's an ordered relationship like God. God is not egalitarian. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Equally valuable equally God, just like the man and the woman are both the image of God, equally valuable, totally equal in God's eyes. But there is order in the relationship just like God. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, I'll read it to you, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's pretty clear. Aren't we patriarchal? No, we're not saying women submit to men. That's patriarchal. If Julia Gillard walks through that door, I will show her the utmost respect as my Prime Minister. It's saying wives submit to your own husbands. It's not about women submitting to men, because we don't believe that. It's about wives submitting to to their husbands. It's an ordered relationship, but here it is. It's uh, it's joyful. I know. You don't believe me? Go and do it your way. But the statistics are against you. This is the way to joy because this is what God is like. Submission is not second prize. Gold is to be the head. Silver is to be... (laughs) No! It's gold, gold why because it's an other person centered relationship in other words everything the man does he does at the cost of himself for his wife it's always other person centered because that's what god is like the father seeks the son to be glorified and the son glorifies the father and the spirit brings glory To the Father and the Son. Not only is it other person centered, it's complementary. That is, that the man has got things that the woman doesn't have. And the woman's got things the man doesn't have. And don't think what you're thinking. Think other things. The point is, is that they complement each other. They are better together. Then apart. When God made man ruler of the world, he said, It's not good for man to be alone. And so he gave him the woman. But, Dwayne, how do you know the crown's there? It's so easy, other than the texts I've read to you. Is that God says to the man, Name the animals, which is a sign of authority. And so there the man stands and he names the animals. You'll be a poodle, you'll be black caviar, you'll be an elephant. When God brings the woman to the man, by the way, if you read the Hebrew, the man has a meltdown. It's like clearly, you know, it's the first live porn in the world. I mean, he goes crazy if you read the Hebrew. He's like stoked. But anyway, he names the woman. It's a sign of his authority. So being like God, man is in this relationship. That's what it's to be like God. Thirdly, there's a third relationship. Being like God, man relates to God as a son. What that means is that God has created a special relationship between Himself and His image on earth. And what God has done is He's given you all the faculties to keep those relationships. I could go through all of them. But in each case, we have the faculties to do this. Have you ever come across an animal that has classified you? Have you? Only man is able to classify the animals. We have the faculties necessary to get the job done. In the same way, this whole idea of one man, one woman for life, it's not the way our dogs live. It's not the way the butterflies live. When men sleep around, they're acting like an animal. They're not acting like the image of God. And in the same way, God has given us the faculties to relate to Him as a son. I'll prove it to you. How many ears do you have? How many mouths do you have? Because you designed for a relationship with God. Spend more time listening than talking. That's why we always preach more than we sing. The whole point is that we designed for a relationship with God. Listen. Our response is to listen, obey, and be thankful. Hey, what's God's job? What's God's job in this relationship? Well, if you read the text, I give you everything for food. In other words, God will provide like a good father. He'll give you sunshine. He'll give you Lancelin on Saturdays. He'll give you fruit. He'll give you everything to be happy. Man is the image of God means those things. Man is the image of God. The likeness of God is those three relational. Because we've seen this. If you've been coming, you will know we saw that God is relational. Remember, that was one of our main points, studying Genesis. Well, it turns out that His image, obviously, is relational in three sets of relationships. And that is the Sabbath. When we come to the last... I don't have time. I'm not going to go into it, if you don't mind. But uh, the Sabbath is an endless state of order... Harmony, joy, where God rules over His people in His place through His King. That's the Sabbath. That's why there's no morning, no evening. It's an endless state of perfection. You can also call it the Kingdom of God. You can call it uh, God's Shalom. Perfect peace and harmony. But you're all thinking, gee, it doesn't look like that anymore. Well... Here's what happened. I, I, I don't have time to go through this too quickly. But it all fell apart. It fell apart miserably. Because what happened? Oh, I'm, you see, now you can miss the, the next Sunday when we preach on Genesis 3. You don't have to come. okay? Because I'm going to steal my thunder right now. But what we saw was all of this was changed. Instead of ruling over the earth, man started listening to the earth and not to God. And so along came a creature, the snake, and it started talking to them. They were designed to listen to God, but they decided to listen to an animal instead. And instead of the man leading his wife, the wife led her man. Instead of the man protecting his wife... When the snake arrived, he should have been defending and protecting his wife. He was on the couch watching the footy. And so it all fell apart. And in the end, the image was gone. And so what God did was he set about creating a new image, a brand new race. And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, 2 and 3, Adam has a son called Seth. And Seth is said to be born in the image of Adam, in the likeness of Adam. But it just gets worse and worse and worse until finally human beings get together and they build this tower called the Tower of Babel. And they try and make their own image. It's the first um, uh, label. What's that? I've got $20 in my pocket. I'm going to bust me some tags. It's the first image conscious m- movement in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. And so what does God do? In the end, Is so much violence. By the way, the man now thinks to be the head means to use and abuse. And the whole thing goes so badly wrong that God wipes it all out. Come with me to Genesis chapter 9. And you know what he does? He starts again. Have a look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 from verse 1. Nearly done. God wipes out. Why does God wipe out His image? Because it doesn't look like Him anymore. It's terrible. It's like He rubs it out. And I'm going to make a new image. And He takes one man, Noah, And look what he says in chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish in the sea, into your hand they are delivered. What's that? Can you see it's the same language as what God said to Adam? It's a brand new start. God has got a new image. It's no longer Adam. It's Noah! Hooray! God's got his image in the world. But what happens to Noah? Adam and Eve liked apples. You know it wasn't really an apple, eh? But we just say that. What fruit did Noah like? Grapes. Unfortunately too many and they were old. And so Noah drinks, gets drunk and once again God's image is compromised. Compromised. And the story carries on until God comes to a man called Abraham. And God says, I'll make your name great. And I'll give you many descendants and I'll take you to a land. In other words, God's going to start through the man Abraham to create this image. Finally, God comes to Abraham's offspring, Israel. And God takes Israel. Israel becomes God's son in the earth. His servant king. And off they go to conquer and spread the knowledge of the glory of God over the earth like the waters cover the sea. But they also fail. And it's just a a catastrophic failure. When will we see the image? When are we going to see the image? I'm stuck. Who do I look at to see God? Do I look at... Brendan? Do I look at Adam? Do I look at Noah? Do I look in the mirror? Where do I see God? Finally God sends the perfect image. His name is Jesus. This is what it says in Hebrews. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom He has appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And watch this. The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. See? Exact imprint. Jesus is not in the likeness of God. He's an exact imprint of God. In Colossians we told this. Jesus, that's talking about Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's starting a new race. Folks, there are only two races in the world, not black, white, Asian, Australian, Southern. There's only two races. Those who are in the firstborn, in Jesus Christ, they are the new image of God and those who choose to be outside of Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Remember those three relationships? So when Jesus is on earth, He rules over it, Perfectly, There's a storm. They're in a boat. And Jesus says, shh, be quiet. And the storm goes quiet. He rules perfectly over the planet. He can take bread. He can multiply it. But he's in perfect harmony and relationship with others. That is, he's other person centred. To such an extent, I mean, he's the king, that he never dies with a Mercedes. He has no butler. Instead, he dies for other people. It's other person centered leadership. But he's still the Lord. And he's in perfect harmony and relationship with God. As the Son of God, he obeys him in everything and submits to him in everything. Wow, this has been long, Dwayne. Where does that leave me? Who are you? You've got a choice. Because what the Bible says is God is creating a new race. He's taking people and he's putting them in to Jesus. And as they're united to Jesus, as they come to believe Jesus, they become the image of God. And that image is working it out over their lifetime. They are more, look at a Christian. Can you see the Christian sitting next to you? Lots of faults, lots of pimples, lots of mistakes. Here's the thing though they're being changed. They're becoming more slowly, some of us very slowly, more and more like Jesus. Look, I know that's a lot of writing, but we nearly, we we're practically finished. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him. And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, watch this, created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Christians are being recreated in the image and likeness of God. Do not lie to one another because that's a naughty thing to do. No, because it's not who you are. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self which is being, so don't lose heart with Christians because it's being, it's not finished, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who are you? Folks. You're a Christian. That's who you are. In the book of Genesis, God created a place and He put His image in it. Now that Jesus has come, the perfect image, God is creating new people and He's gone to prepare a place where He will put them in. In Genesis, He makes the place first, puts the people in. Now he's making the people first and he'll put them in the place. And first he's working on the inside and as he changes us, one day, because we're all still going to die, one day he'll create our bodies new and we will be in his likeness forever. That's who you are. If you're not a Christian, well, I don't know who you are. I don't know. Maybe you do. What do you think? Any questions or comments? I know that was an awful lot. Sorry. Oh, I'm suggesting that the likeness of God is the way that a husband and wife relate. So in the Bible, as you know, John, in the New Testament, uh, as Christ is the head of the church, loved the church, gave himself for the church, so the husband ought to love his wife and lay down his life for his wife. And that is part of the image, the way we relate as husband and wife. And I'm getting that from Genesis chapter 1. Someone asked me that at North Coast Church and, and I thought it was such a good question that if no one was going to ask me a question, I was going to bring it up. What about single people? You're saying, Dwayne, that man and woman are in the image of God. The way they like God is the way they relate to each other. What about single people? Mate, what's happened is that the perfect image has come. Jesus Christ. And that when you are a single person as a Christian, you are united to Jesus. In fact, He is your Husband. You are not single as a Christian. I always say this in premarital counseling. I always say to the husband and to the wife, remember you number two. You got your second. Someone else got your first. God is your husband. Jesus Christ is your head, both of men and of women. That's why Jesus says in the new heavens and earth there's no marriage. Now that Jesus has come, those are united to Jesus by faith, are fully complete in Him. We reflect His image perfectly because we're united to Jesus Christ. It wasn't like that in Eden. Let me be honest. Before the fall, before Genesis chapter three in Eden, if you were a single man, you didn't. You weren't the image of God. Well, you were, but you weren't in the likeness of God yet. You had to find a wife. And so God, because God said, "It's not good for a man to be alone." But now that Christ has come and the fall's happened, that's totally changed. So Paul can say, in Jesus Christ, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile. It's radically changed. We now find our image and identity in the gospel in Jesus. But that doesn't affect the relationships. The order in the relationships totally carries on into the New Testament because the New Testament says so. Is that, is that helpful? I'm so wordy tonight. Fair, I think that's a fair comment. Yes. Ah, yes, but I wasn't just looking at the passage i tell you why, because Matt next week is preaching on Genesis chapter 2. And he'll go into God created man, brought the animals to him. I was jumping a little bit ahead. But that's because I was trying to give a full picture of what it means to be in the likeness of God. You're right. You're right. It's It's not as expressly clear in the text we were looking at. But really I was approaching it topically. What is the image of God? You're right. And you're also right to say bringing in... Christ and the church and the trinity is... Conf- You're right. It's a vast topic. That women don't fulfill. No, no. No, 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 no. No, no. Women fulfill the image of God perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. The likeness of God is how a man and a w- husband and a wife relate in marriage. But a woman by herself, who is a Christian, is fully the image of God because she's relating properly. She's submitting to her true husband, who is Jesus Christ. There's no sense in which a woman is deficiently the image of God, because the text says male and female He created them. In an image of God, He made them. It's husband and wife together that are the image of God. Wow, I haven't made myself very clear. Uh, And the same with a man. The same with a man. There's no difference between male and female here. None at all. None at all. A man must submit to Jesus Christ in every much the same way that a woman ought to. No difference at all. And there's no sense in which a man is in any sense more the image than a female. Not at all. What I was talking about is before the fall in the garden of Eden, the likeness of God is seen in man and woman as they relate in an ordered way. That's what I was saying. There is absolutely no way that a woman is in any way lesser an image of God than a man. That makes absolutely no sense. That's to read into headship. The world's idea that to be head is to be superior. That's not what the Bible teaches. To be the head is not to be superior. It's to take up the responsibility that your role carries with it. I know, John, you're right. It's very tricky. Um, John's got me. its It's a huge topic. Fair enough, John. We'll think more about it. Well, exactly. Uh, I hope you all heard that because I, I, I don't know if I'd be able to repeat all of that. But that's why God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's why Genesis one twenty six let us make man and it was male and female. I'm trying to show you that the way the husband and the wife relate is in the likeness of God. Prior to the fall, prior to Jesus Christ. But coming back to what you said, you're right. Our image... Is perfectly restored in Jesus Christ, the perfect image. And that that is irrelevant whether you're male or female. Totally irrelevant. The fact that you're a Homo sapien who trusts in Jesus Christ means the image is recreated, renewed. Which is what the Bible says. Wow, I suddenly feel terrible. <laughs> Is this all no no it's fine. We we can do this sometimes guys. No, no no problem hitting the hard you might be a visitor. It's not always the cerebral. I mean, we're just hitting a heavy topic tonight. Does that help you, Kat? Yeah. How can I put this another way? Yeah, feel free. <laughs> I'm not an expert on women. And I don't buy the whole thing that yeah, yeah, look, I'm not men from Mars, women. I don't I mean. Stero- the problem with stereotypes is that yeah. easily because the church is the family of God very easy it's very simple there are two areas where the relationship is ordered actually it's ordered in all areas but there is a nexus between a husband and a wife as there is between the church and Christ and therefore the church ought to reflect God's good order for his creation No, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm piecing it together based on what, what, what it says in, in places like 1 Timothy. He uses this whole, Paul uses this whole story of the woman being deceived and the man not being deceived and yet being led astray. He uses that whole picture to portray a, a government in the local church. That's why he forbids women to be the head of a church. But you know this. Have a look at 1 Timothy. That's what he expressly says. I'll quote. Hey, do you want me to become even more unpopular? I'll quote the Bible. I forbid a woman to preach and teach and have authority over men. I'm quoting. For Adam was formed first and Eve was deceived. How far do you think Paul would get in ministry today? That's what it says in the New Testament. Yous are, now I'm in trouble. Guys, we've got to take two more and then we've got to stop. Oh, I'm sorry. All I, I'll answer these questions and wrap up. All I was trying to say is that who are you? You need to find your identity in God. And I shouldn't have said the rest. Tim. 1 Timothy. Someone help me. 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, I thought it was 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2. And now, uh, who was it? Was it Karen or Hannah? Have a fight. So girls, I'm not saying, yes. you want good advice girls? Don't marry a man you can't submit to. Don't marry a man who's not willing to die for you. Man comes and says, I want to have sex with you, but hey, I don't want to be married. He can't be your head. You want a man who wants to die for you, who gives up his life for you, because that's what headship means. Jesus shows what headship means. He dies on a cross for his bride, the church. Unless a man is willing to give up everything for you, please don't let him come near you. That's interesting. We are spiritual like God is. Absolutely. you've, You've got a number of questions there. But yes, to be a Christian is to have received the Holy Spirit. Yes, we were designed for that capacity, designed for that. There is a spiritual side to us. But the idea that you can separate there's a physical side and a spiritual side, it's helpful, but actually the Bible treats us as a psychosomatic unity. It's very Greek thinking to start splitting spirit, body. uh, And it's fun and it's nice. It makes things understandable sometimes, but don't get carried away. We're actually a whole. God made man out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed into him the breath of life and never the twain uh, shall separate. Until death. But even death is unnatural. Death's not natural. It's not part of the plan. And one day we look forward to all of that being together perfectly in God's image. Okay, we better stop there. because I want someone to come back next week. So I better stop. Cool, guys. Hey, listen, you, you might not just agree with everything. That's cool, eh? Don't lose, don't lose heart. It's okay. Thank you, Fish.
1: You join, me, join with me as we um, pray together. Creator God the God who spoke things into existence, the God who created us. We come to you as one family tonight. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you that we have the freedom to to respond to you and talk to you and have a relationship with you. We praise you for who you are and what you have done in our lives. We thank you for the relationship that we enjoy with you. And that we are your image bearers. We thank you for your Son Jesus Christ, because of whom we have a relationship with you. We thank you that Jesus Christ made himself nothing, that he took the form of a servant, became a man, humbled himself, humbled himself to the point of death, and he just didn't die but He conquered death. He defeated death. And He just, and he just d- didn't remain dead. He rose again. And His name is above all other names. And it is because of Him and what He achieved on the cross that we have a relationship with You, Father. And Father, as a result of what You have done for us through Your Son, Jesus, we pray that You would help us Help us to be a church that is an outward-looking church, a church that is on mission for Jesus. And with that in mind, we we just commit UniChurch as we plan to plant UniChurch next month. We pray for those who will be going, who will be leaving us here at DTE. We pray that you would draw more and more people towards yourself as your gospel goes out. We pray for those of us here at Down to Earth Church. Help us to continue to grow in our understanding of you and help us to have a deeper love for the lost, for those who are far away from you. Help us, Lord, we pray, as we go into this week, that you would enable us to live for you, to be servants following the example of Jesus, living for him and seeking opportunities to share his love in our everyday life. We pray that You will continue to equip us to live for You in this world. And we ask this in Your name. Amen.